What comes to mind when you think of propaganda? We've had two years of a massive display of it, and probably most people think only those who disagree with their position on anything were the ones affected. My guest today talks with me about propaganda, who or what might be behind it, and what does it achieve. The rabbit hole is right this way, but you'll have to do the legwork of exploring it. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 181. Hello! Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Barbecue season is coming. That means queuing and grilling and smoking and all that needs at least one thing. A great thermometer. Check out the selection of instant read digital thermometers at culinarylibertarian.com slash chef-temp. For you multitaskers, ChefTemp has a multi-thermometer with Bluetooth capability. Yeah, you can be fixing the vittles inside and still keep an eye on the butts outside. Head over to culinarylibertarian.com slash ChefTemp and buy a digital thermometer today. Also, works on corned beef. Jim Bovard is my guest today. Jim is a freelance journalist and writes for several publications, both in print and virtual. His career as a writer spans many years, and he's got 10 books to his name. I've invited Jim on to talk about propaganda, and as a writer in D.C., he has had first-hand knowledge and experience with some of that. Good morning, Jim. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Well, it's my pleasure. So the world went and got itself into a hot war, which I'm not sure it's actually a war, but it's pretty darn close. And I had hoped to live the rest of my life never seeing that. But yet here we are. So before we get into talking about today's topic, which is propaganda, uh, in case there's somebody who doesn't know who you are, can you give us just a brief background about yourself? Ah, ah. Uh, I always hate to do that because it makes me sound so arrogant, which I try so hard to avoid. Uh, I'm a journalist. I write for a bunch of papers. Uh, I'm on the board of contributors for USA Today. Um, I do stuff for New York Post. I do stuff for a number of think tanks, Future Freedom Foundation, Libertarian Institute, uh, Mises Institute, Ron Paul Institute, um, written for a lot of places in the past, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Playboy, uh, author of 10 books and, um, you know, um, yeah. So is that, does that suffice? It does indeed. The whole idea of, I think every propaganda as a thing's probably been around since as long as three humans have been around. So it's, it's, it's not to do naval, so I'm not interested in really going through the history of all that because it's kind of probably boring. Um, so I was thinking, trying to figure out where for, for, so back when you and I are probably similarly aged and back in high school, we read these government textbooks about World War II propaganda and maybe dropping leaflets from planes. And there was a mash episode about a bomb, which had nothing but leaflets inside and surrender, you know, G.I. Joe. Reading an article uh, that Daniel McAdams, who was the co-host for the Ron Paul Liberty Report uh, and writes other things, uh, he wrote a blog post and, and wrote this sentence or this phrase, quote, history started when they the media and the war machine government. That's my editorial edition. History started when they tell you it started. Never mind about the past or how U.S. intervention created the circumstances that led to whatever horrible outcome we witness, end quote. That sounds right. History began when we tell you it began. For most 
people that probably really means 9-11 because internet was probably pretty popular then. So what is, is there a change in propaganda? How does anybody trust the government? What, I mean, where, where do we start trying to figure out what it is and how to identify it? Well, that's, uh, those are difficult questions. Uh, but yeah, Daniel McAdams has done a lot of excellent work on the, um, um, it, it exposing the background of U.S. interventions, the uh, the uh, the um, uh, predecessors of it. What we have now is the uh, Vestal Virgin theory of U.S. interventions, and it, it doesn't matter what happened before. At the time the U.S. government starts to intervene, uh, we are obliged to assume it's a Vestal Virgin. I mean, this was the same thing that Woodrow Wilson did in uh, 1917 when he pulled the U.S. into war against uh, Germany and Austria. I mean, you know, at that time, the U.S. had been supplying, um, you know, arms and other uh, equipment and goods to Britain. Uh, And so, and yet we were supposed to be outraged that that the Germans were attacking our ships that were supplying the British. Um, So, um it's interesting. A lot of people thought that with the internet, it became a lot, there were a lot more um, information sources. So it would not be so difficult to be able to find, to expose government lies, especially, um, you know, a, a, you know, another example is the Gulf of Tonkin. You had President Johnson saying that there, it was a, um, a, a, that the North, North Vietnamese were, had launched an unprovoked attack on U.S. ships. Uh, in the Gulf of Tonkin, which wasn't quite true, but uh, Johnson left out the fact the U.S. was aiding the South Koreans launching attacks on the North Vietnamese coast. And this is, you know, this is like a little detail that would really change the narrative as far as uh, whipping up war fever in 1964 and 65. Um, but this is typical of the, how the, um, how the war narrative is framed in a way that um, simply absolves the U.S. government or, or absolves U.S. allies. Uh, so if they get into a fight that the U.S. decides to support. And, uh, um, you know, the politicians count on people not having good bullshit radars, and the politicians are usually right. That part's true. And there's, it's a nasty thing to say, but, and it, 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 it opens dozens of cases of cans of worms. The inability of or refusal, maybe both, of most Americans to see bullshit when it's presented, but also the people who make it have gotten extraordinarily savvy at presenting it. And maybe it's not entirely the citizens refault for not recognizing it because it's man, it's, it's, it's a number one stuff, man. I, uh, some of it's good. Some of it isn't, uh, you know, if you flash back 20 years to how the uh, Bush administration was selling its war in Iraq, there were so many claims they were using that were so obviously uh, bogus. If you looked at the, uh, even a little bit of the history uh, preceding the uh, April 2003 U.S. invasion, March-April uh, invasion. Um, but, you know, but folks were trying to raise that point were simply excluded from the vast majority of mainstream media. Folks who were opposing the war were demonized and basically uh, othered. And, um, you know, so, so because of that, and there's, it's like there's an army of pundits are always almost always willing to go lockstep uh, in support of U.S. government intervention. We're seeing that with Ukraine right now, um, and it, it's a, it's almost comical to see, um, you know, some of the idiot GOP members of Congress calling for a no-fly zone, and Joe Biden being the voice of reason. It's like you know, Biden's kind of saying, "No, that's you know, I, I'm not sure if he's specifically coming on the no-fly zone, but it's." Uh, he he is pushed back against the uh, clamoring for the U.S. to jump in there and save the uh, save Kiev or wherever. So this is going to probably appear to be an obvious question, but what's the purpose 
of propaganda? Uh, to make people uh, submit, to make people fear, to, uh, uh, you, know, um, some, you know, sometimes the purpose of propaganda is to make people, uh, to simply make people keep quiet because um, there are, you know, there's, there's been a big push in the last week or so to label anybody who's uh, criticizing proposals for U.S. intervention in Ukraine as a, um, you know, as a traitor as a Russian supporter, as a Putin puppet. And it's like, um, it's unfortunate that the, it's so easy to push those buttons again. I mean, it was, you know, flashback 2002, 2003. The same thing was said about, you know, people who opposed the Iraq war. Well, there are a bunch of, you know, supporters of Saddam Hussein, they don't care about babies being bayoneted in hospitals or whatever the uh, propaganda was that week. Um, and it, it's just, it's fascinating how, how easy it is to create a supposed moral imperative not to look at the evidence that, that preceded uh, a, a military conflict because it's almost never the simple good versus evil storyline which is fashionable with the media and the um, politicians. There's an interesting omission in those claims where if, you, if you're opposed to war, then you're unpatriotic. But that no one ever seems to say, I'm opposed to war because murder is bad. <laughs> you, know, you don't get that choice. If you're opposed to, to war, either you're a Putin puppet or you're something else, but you're un-American. Freedom fries, after all. Uh, and this, so now the push is don't buy Russian vodka. But the people who make the vodka, if it's made in Russia at all, maybe it isn't. They're just people trying to make a living. They want to feed their family and put a roof over the head. So paying for something, dumping something out that you already bought, well, that'll show them. Like, come on. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is this is the 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 caliber of the moral thinking and and the uh, virtue signaling because so much of this is simply virtue signaling. And um, uh, there was a tweet I did a couple hours ago that talked about the parallel. People were, uh, you know, the uh, people like former U.S. ambassadors and stuff like that are saying, you know, first say that. Putin is a dictator, and then they say that every Russian is to blame for this. And it's the same storyline we heard with Woodrow Wilson. Um, Wilson brought the um, U.S. to war in his address to Congress. He said that the Kaiser is basically a terrible dictator, and uh, we don't blame the German people. You know, flash forward a, a year, two years later, the U.S. was supporting policies that were starving average Germans, including after the end of the uh, after Armistice Day on November 11, 1980. For six months afterwards, the British maintained a blockade on Germany, which increased starvation and caused a lot of um, horrendous health problems, which the Germans were very bitter about. So, um, yeah, it's. Um, it's frustrating that, and it's, I'm seeing this with the uh, current clash. I mean, there are so many people who are coming out of the woodworks who you would have hoped would have been banished from polite society forever, such as Hillary Clinton. I mean, she's out there saying, well, this just proves everything I always said about Putin and Russian intervention. It's like, no, I mean, uh, you know, there are so many folks clinging to the storyline, acting as if Putin's attack on Ukraine um, vindicates claims that he stole the 2006 16 U.S. election. It's like you know, this is um, this is bad logic even for politicians. Yeah, well, the the politicians clearly have an agenda. Either at least stay in the news or get reelected. There's the the possibility to go down some quote-unquote conspiracy theory rabbit holes with the question of who is ultimately behind the propaganda. Is it, it could be that it isn't as obvious as it is. And maybe they're, they're the recent uh, 
the Great Reset has become fairly well known, and all that's been that idea has been bouncing around Klaus's head for a while. But it's, it, the Build Back Better and all these other kinds of slogans are coming out about it. Is 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 <laughs> do we dare say the Rothschilds are behind all this? Or is that just is that just getting too far off? Of course. Uh, I don't think it was the Rothschilds. Uh, I think it was, you know, there are a, a lot of politicians, a lot of um, corporations benefiting from this and uh, other interest groups that are in favor of unleashing government power. And that's what the Great Reset has done so far. And it's, um, you know, it's funny to hear the, the storyline that Biden pushed last night in the State of the Union address talking about the... Um, uh, Biden said that uh, uh, said that that the U.S. had basically achieved victory over COVID because because the government gave people free vaccines, free tests, and free masks. And I'm thinking, well, the vaccines aren't working so well. The tests were either corrupted or late, and and most people got their own mask, which could have worked a hell of a lot better. Uh, so, but it's just it it's interesting that a president can make that type of claim. And uh, so far, I've not seen any criticism of Biden for that specific assertion. I mean, there were some people that were have raised doubts about his assertion that that uh, that, uh, that that Putin surrounding Kiev with tanks was not going to change the um, how the people in Iran felt about freedom. Yeah, well, it's probably not going to change it. But this is, you know, uh, there's just uh, there's there's so many weird points in that speech last night. It's just like you're. You're sitting there, okay? You know, did Saturday Night Live, did Saturday Night Live hijack the uh, the video feed here or what? But uh, no, it was all Biden. So, so with the advent of the internet and the ability to, so when something goes in print on a newspaper, it's it's pretty much there. It's in print, and you can't go, you can't take papers out of circulation. Well, with a digital medium, you can remove a post. You can just say, ah, yeah, never there. And I know there are people out there who I, I'm, I'm impressed by their ability to just stay on top of all this. And that they have screenshots of everything. It's kind of amazing. But if, if someone can just say, make the statement that is patently not the case, is the truth knowable? Uh, certainly the uh, truth is noble, but uh, often it takes some elbow grease. But let me clarify that. I mean, part of my frustration with this current uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine is, you know, how many years is it going to be until we find out what the government knew and when the U.S. government knew it? Because the uh, U.S. government is creating trillions of pages of new secrets every year. I mean, you know, the there's a classified stamp, which is, blocking off huge amounts of information on foreign policy, U.S. defense, and a lot of other areas, probably COVID as well, some of the origins uh, of the virus. Uh, so, um, I mean, it's, it, it goes back to what the um, Chief Justice Earl Warren tried to do with the Warren Commission. I mean, there were all these, um, you know, there were all these facts, but the Warren Commission said that, that they were going to seal a lot of their records for 75 years. Yeah, well, I can't imagine why, why people lost trust in the government. But um, that was the same thing which the FDA recently did when someone was suing to get a copy of Pfizer's application for its vaccine approval for COVID. Um, the, the FDA said it would take them 75 years to fully respond to the FOIA Freedom of Information Act request. So, I mean, this is, this is Warren Commission level BS. Um, one judge struck it down that I think the FDA is appealing that decision with Pfizer's help, but, um, I'm just puzzled why people would trust the government when the government says that, um, you know, that, that we have nothing to hide for more than 75 years. You know, how many, how many people actually, I mean, there's nobody to know this, but how many people actually saw that piece of information? And then of those who saw it, how many believed it? How many thought, oh, this can't be true? Or I can't even understand how the conclusion could be that the information is right, but it's so sensitive we can't know it for 75 years. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, that, that's a good question. That's something which I've mentioned. I mentioned it in either USA Today or New York Post, or maybe both, done recent stories on that that, that, that had a, you know, a one or two sentence reference to that. But I mean, this is, uh, there are some people that have done some excellent articles on this and uh, some groups that have been following this issue, but it hasn't gotten much visibility. Uh, so, uh, but I, you know, um, it's funny, Biden is, you know, Biden, um, you know, was promising that, that he would, uh, that he would restore trust in government. And I'm kind of thinking like, well, I was hoping he'd do something positive. Uh, so, I mean, because people, people got too much trust in the government at this point. I mean, that's part of the reason why we're so misgoverned. Yeah, I, I think that that's, I think there's a lot to that. This, this is, I think, probably a hard, maybe even an unfair question to ask, but with this just vast amount of content, both in print and digital, for the person who is willing to do the legwork, which is not really legwork at all because you've got a button and a chair, but willing to put in the effort, how does somebody start to sift through all of that stuff to get to something that looks like it might be truth? Well, I, I mean, reading, uh, you know, um, Reading is a trick that's actually worked pretty well for humans for quite a few centuries. So uh, if, if people want to understand something such as the uh, COVID pandemic, there are a lot of good sources online. There's a lot of bad sources online. But as you, um, people need to be critical readers. And simply because something agrees with you or supports your point of view doesn't make it uh, valid or accurate. So um I, you know, it's, it's partly, um, you know, uh, to develop and sharpen your own bullshit radar. And I don't know the best steps to do that. I mean, I was always interested in, I was interested in philosophy from the time I was in my late teens. And there was a wonderful book I read. One of the biggest impacts on me is a philosophy book was one that a book that nobody ever reads anymore called by John Stuart Mill. And it's called a system of logic. And I don't, maybe seven, 800 pages, maybe not quite that long, but um, I read it and I was, I was fascinated at how he walked through, um, explained the notion that, you know, that the truth was, you, you had to rely on, on empirical tests for truth. And he was pushing back against some of the, uh, I guess, some of the church folks back then who were saying, well, truth comes from the Bible, truth comes from the supreme being. Truth comes from moral reality. But John Stuart Mill did a beautiful job of just, you know, walking through um, how, how logic works, how, how rationality can be a guide. David Hume has done wonderful, did wonderful stuff on that as well. So, um, but I can understand why damn few people would, would want to read John Stuart Mill's system of logic these days. <laughs> it seems that at least one use as in the last two years have demonstrated, I think have amply demonstrated that the, one of the uses of propaganda is to keep as a distraction, keep people nibbling at the shiny bits um, to, to not look for more than they're just being fed. Um, now you mentioned, so reading <laughs> useful skill I'm not sure that's really taught anymore. Critical thinking is not taught anymore. Um, I don't know if it, it ever was in this country. So, I mean, it sure as hell not something which I got in the classroom. No, I think I had to go to college. I, I had to seek it out from instructors at college who, not on a classroom level, on a person to student, on a teacher to student level. I mean, I sought it out and I got it. Sure. Um, okay. But it wasn't available to, I mean, it was available, but you had to know to ask for it. It wasn't just presented in any classroom. Um, a sense of history, which also <laughs> we don't have. Yeah, yeah, this is huge. I mean, and, and a huge part of that sense of history is to recognize how often governments lie. And uh, Biden last night was saying that this is a, you know, that we're seeing a worldwide clash between, you know, between democracy and autocracy. And I'm thinking, well, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell the difference between the two. 
I mean, if, if, if Biden can issue a presidential edict that compels 100 million Americans to get an injection, which the Supreme Court later strikes down, how is that not uh, Biden acting like an autocrat? Um, I mean, um, it's, it's a, a point I made in passing on Twitter is that, you know, there is a big conflict with Russia and Ukraine. Russia uh, very much appears to be the villain now, but the government of Ukraine has been so corrupt that that, 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 that nation has had more depopulation than practically any place on earth in the last 30 years because people were so misgoverned and oppressive that they simply left. I mean, it's a heck of a thing when Poland is the, uh, you know, promised land, you know, oh, you know, hey, I'm going to Poland. I mean, it's, it, it, it brings to mind uh, Samuel Johnson had a great line. Samuel Johnson said that the, that the best thing a Scottish person ever saw was the road to England. And so, uh, and the folks in Ukraine, you know, best thing is the road to Poland. It's like, you know, you know, somebody's doing something wrong there. So it doesn't justify an invasion and Russia, if Russia takes control, they'll probably make it worse. But it's, you know, it's not like uh, Putin was, uh, you know, um, charging into some, you know, Valhalla. So I, w- I mentioned earlier the freedom fries and the dumping out of vodka. And I have seen people who I think should know, but just high school friends who should know better than this getting into that i don't even know i don't think calling it patriotism is right but there's some there's some minds that maybe maybe it's just lazy maybe that's it maybe it is intellectually lazy and easy to just follow the crowd and chant your slogans and do your silly little acts and say look at me i'm supporting something um, there's a big virtue element to, uh, to all this as far as announcing the vodka uh, boycotts. I mean, it doesn't affect me. I don't drink vodka. vodka. If they're talking about beer. You know, I take it seriously. But, you know, I never saw any good Russian beer. So, um, yeah, you know, it, it's virtue signaling. I mean, you know, people tend to function in herds. Uh, and that's one thing that some of the social media has done is uh, accentuated that or, or made it easy to be a herd online, you know, with people on Twitter, everybody likes, share, so on and so forth. That's the highest logic. I mean, um, I did a story a couple months ago for New York Post talking about uh, there was a something was tr- uh, trending on Twitter and it had a reference to the deep state. So I just said, you know, um, keep in mind that, you know, that the FBI and CIA did do a lot of crap. Uh, during the uh, to, to undercut Trump presidential campaign and the presidency doesn't mean that Trump was honest or trustworthy. Uh, but a huge backlash on Twitter because, oh, yeah, believes in the deep state, gotta be a nut. And it's funny, it was from the same types of people who were cheering the role of the deep state in late 2019 when the deep state was providing the evidence of Trump's supposed misconduct on Ukraine when he, for which he was impeached. And it's like, okay, so the deep state didn't exist, and then it did exist, and now it doesn't exist. Anybody who believes it exists is a uh, crazy person. So, you know, you, it's important to keep your scorecard up to date. And that brings us back to reading and critical thinking and a sense of history. When It seems like Americans have just turned to a bunch of pussies. That's a really nasty thing to say, but how do we... Also, the apparent refusal to examine information in front of you instead of just accepting it. And and so these people who bash you on Twitter are the same people who in favor of the deep state when it's doing what they want, instead of saying, hey, what's going on here? Um, George Carlin had a really good line, and I'm going to butcher it, but basically it was, I have one rule to live by, and it is I never believe anything the government tells me. Zero. It sounds like a really good idea and probably a good place to start, yet we have so many, it's, it, it seems, I have no proof, I can't say this many people, but it seems like a lot of people are just willing to roll with whatever way the political winds are blowing, and it doesn't even matter if five minutes ago it was completely contradictory information. Well, yeah, I mean, folks tend to... Um... 
folks take their opinions in herds. Uh, Carlin's an interesting example because he did some wonderful lines and some wonderful performances. And it was great that he shifted into political stuff late in his life. Uh, I mean, he set a number of gold standards on that. But uh, a lot of people don't, don't recall or never heard that when he was, uh, you know, what Carlin would usually do was travel around the country and, uh, you know, if, if folks if, if folks went to see him, it's because they wanted to see George Carlin. I mean, they were, you know, they were serious Carlin fans. He was doing a gig in, I guess, 2004 in Vegas. And so uh, and it was a different audience because it was uh, people that were like, well, Mabel, let's see what's let's see what the options are. Well, there's Carrot Top or there's George Carlin. Well, why don't we see George Carlin? He was funny as a weatherman, as a hippie, 1966. So, you know, that was the audience he had. And he was, um, you know, things were uh, the Bush administration was turning to hell at that point. Uh, and so uh, Carlin uh, did a riff on the war on terror, beating up on it. And the audience in Vegas started to boo him. And Carlin being Carlin, he just cussed out the audience. He said, you bunch of, you know, I can't use it on a family podcast like yours, but he just ripped into them with no mercy. And he said, no, and just kind of walked off the stage. And I think think he later said that the the audiences were better in New Jersey. So it's like, (laughs) damn, you're talking about the ultimate insult. Uh, But uh, so even George Carlin was faced with... um, an audience of bootleggers. So um, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, it's interesting. Let's, you know, hypo- I'm, I'm not disagreeing, but let's flash back 55 years. We're at whatever, 1966, 1967, still a lot of support for the Vietnam war, even though there was a lot of evidence at that point that the war was bullshit and that the Johnson administration was lying, that McNamara was lying um, and yet it was very unpatriotic to say that in public. I mean, I was a Boy Scout in the late 1960s. And, you know, there was a, um, you know, if, if memory serves, uh, being obedient was one of the 12 Scout laws. There's a reason I didn't stay too long in the Boy Scouts. So uh, I'm, I probably embarrassed them a number of times in the last few years writing about them. Kind of like, why the hell are they doing this? But that's a different story. You know, they may very well have embarrassed themselves. So, oh my God! Well, no. I mean, if you, you know, all the cover-ups of um, you know sexual predators did not help them. So, no, I was also a Boy Scout and and made it into the Order of the Arrow, and I was oh, very okay. proud of that. And I, you know, quite honestly, I I have some spectacular memories uh, of being in Boy Scouts. I you know learning a lot of things like like you were supposed to do. Uh, I had some really good times in summer camp. I, I was on staff. I was just, I, I'm, I'm saddened to see it has become what it has become. Um, uh, yes. I think for a while it, it served a very vital and useful function for a lot of young men, a lot of young boys who, who needed some direction, who needed what really, frankly, discipline and order. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, there was, uh, there were a lot of benefits I got from that. I mean, uh, something which I learned was that minor hardships were a transaction cost for great adventures. And okay, so you were cold, you were wet, you maybe missed a meal or two, maybe you had a bloody no- a nose, but you had a, a great weekend. You were out hiking and camping and doing things. You're out doing whitewater canoe racing, uh, you know, all kinds. Of, there are a lot of skills I, which I learned. Um, I went to a jamboree out in Idaho in 1969, and, you know, that was where where I learned that I did not like marching with thirty thousand people. So it's kind of like you know, I was kind of like, okay, so why am I here? So, uh, but a lot of great adults, a lot of uh, and some good friends from there. So, right is so as we move forward in what I mean, I was listening to Ron Paul this morning and I, I give Ron Paul more credence than I give myself for having any sense of what's going on in the world. Now, he seems to be of the opinion, and maybe I misheard him, that maybe not too much is going to be made of this in the next couple of weeks. And I, I think anybody with 
with a reasonable brain will say, let's hope everything ends in a couple of weeks. Let's, you know, let, let, let speaking and diplomacy, if they even exist anymore, do its job. And let's stop with the bullets and the bombs and all that stuff in between that time. And for the, when the next thing happens, whenever the next thing is, how is there something you can? <laughs> this is you have one minute. No, I'm kidding. Um, but how how do how do people begin to learn more than just going and reading history books from 50 years ago, which is valuable, and knowing that Woodrow Wilson was a tool? How do people discern with all the stuff that's coming through their Facebook page? Well, Facebook is bad. All the stuff on the internet. How do they sort through all of this? with any sense of purpose and say, okay, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Oh, this might be right. How do they know? Well, it, it helps to start out with a North Star uh, and, uh, you know, to start out having an appreciation for individual freedom and the value of peace, peace between individuals and the peace between nations. Um, once those are your baseline, that's, that's something which can give you a paradigm or lens to interpret what's happening elsewhere. If, if the politicians are saying um, that it's necessary to have a lockdown and prohibit anybody from going outside your house for the next six months because it's an emergency, if you appreciate individual freedom and, and you have some awareness how politicians lie through their teeth, you'll recognize this is probably bullshit. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people cheering for it. It's interesting um, one of Biden's first actions was to issue a uh, edict saying that you had to wear a mask on federal property. So one thing I do, I'm, I enjoy uh, hiking out on some of the trails nearby here. And I was out hiking on the uh, CNO Canal towpath after that. And I had a number of people screaming at me uh, because I was walking outside far away from them, not wearing a mask. And it's like, and it, it wasn't simply... The, uh, you know, the, the, the people were far enough away that there was no risk of contagion to them for me not wearing a mask. It was the idea of disobedience. The, the, um, it was as if anyone who failed to submit placed everybody else in mortal danger. And it's almost like you're going back to ancient times where, you know, where people felt they had to stone the heretic to death or else God would punish the entire society. Uh, and that's some of the mindset which we've gotten to. Um, there are a lot of good websites and sources and um, kind of dissident opinions uh, which people can tap. Like if you're looking for information on the um, war in Ukraine, Russia, Russia, Ukraine, uh, antiwar.com, FFF.org, uh, Libertarian Institute, Mises. Um, some of the newspapers have done some good stuff on this as well. Uh, there's some magazines that have criticized it. So it's, and I think that there's starting to be that some of the gatekeepers are starting to permit a little bit of skepticism, kind of like the hell is going on here. So, uh, but, you know, I thought the same about the push to Iraq war late 2002 and I was wrong. So I think really, I think the the main purpose one, because I know you've written about this. I've read some of your articles about it. <laughs> you've, you've also been on the receiving end of this. Uh, the little uh, article about the the guy, the kid on the one side of you on the airplane, and the oh yeah, 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 ranger oh, yeah. or something was, at the airport oh, yeah. on the other yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, flying to Dallas on the day or two after inauguration, two thousand five. So I ended up being caught in the middle seat because my previous flight had been canceled because of snow and. Middle seat, and I was, um, you know, on, on, on one side, I had a, like a 13, 14 year old, uh, well fed little boy who was the, uh, from the uh, same town that George Bush, George W. Bush claimed he was from. And the other side was an Air Force sergeant, I think. And so, uh, yeah, so and yeah, it, that's a long story. But yeah, I had some, you know, some guy screaming at me uh, the whole way, like, don't believe what this guy says. He's, you know, uh, basically saying I was a traitor or whatever the hell he said. I mean, I'm just thinking like, you know, there's a reason I avoid middle seats. <laughs> well, it, it was a fun read, and I'll put a link to that article on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 181. 
Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right. I want to move into a sort of a short answer part of the show, which has nothing to do with propaganda, but it's kind of a little bit of a fun. Uh, of the five flavors, bitter, salty, sweet, sour, and umami, which one is your favorite? Uh, uh, what was the last one? Umami. Umami. That's... Um, is the is the, the it's like um like a mushroom naturalish flavor? It's... Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's count that one out. Uh, so uh, salt salty was one of the options. Salt, bitter, sweet, sour. Yeah, salt. What's your favorite food? Oh Christ! Um, let's say peanut butter. Good but peanut butter. Least... Good peanut butter. Well, you know, and, and for people who think, well, whatever, <laughs> there is a spectacular difference between just the peanut butter and just the really good stuff. Yeah. What you? Yes. Go ahead. Uh, there was a brand Arrowhead Mills used to make great peanut butter, but I don't think that they make it anymore. That's too bad. All the good stuff seems to be taken away. Well, yeah. I, I mean, you know, the, uh, peanut butter is about the only thing which I make an effort to buy at Whole Foods because they've got very good store brand peanut butter at a very good price and it's salted. So that's good. What's your least favorite food? Oh, hell, there's about 300. Um, let's just say, uh, uh, let's say sushi because that'll make me sound uh, high toned. What sound do you love? The sound of a, a beer bottle opening. What sound do you hate? Um, let me see. The, the sound of a notification on my cell phone. Hmm. What gets you excited? Ha, ha, ha. Hey, I'm, I'm trying to keep this high toned. Uh, hmm. let's just say, uh, really good comedy. What turned you off? Bad comedy. This question is specifically for you. What is the best cigar? Um, well, you're asking the wrong guy because, see, there's, there are two different standards. I mean, I enjoy beer, but the difference between a good beer and a really good beer and a lame beer is a dollar a bottle. The difference between a cheap cigar and a really good cigar is $20 a cigar. So I've been very careful to never develop good taste in cigars. Basically, 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 basically what I do is, uh, you know, go to some of the um, online outlets and say, OK, can I get something for a dollar a cigar? And, you know, I know it's not going to be very good. I mean, you know, I don't you know, I, you know, I'm only doing one a day or so. So it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm uh, chain smoking cigars. But no, I mean, I've um, uh, and it's um, I was I was sitting here. I mean, OK, so this is audio, so we can't see the uh, video, but. I've been chewing, I've been a little bit chawing on a cigar th throughout the interview. And I started out by, by, by pulling off the, the, uh, the label on the cigar. And it, uh, especially during the uh, late 1990s boom, it was very fastful for guys to hold cigars, hold cigars in a way that, that, the, that the label, the name of the cigar was visible. I mean, it would, you know, it was, it was sort of like some bimbo uh, waving a big cheap diamond ring. So, and the guys were very proud of the brand of cigars they were smoking. And it's kind of like, you know, so folks, sometime, uh, sometimes they, when they see me smoking a cigar, they, they ask me, is that a Cuban cigar? And I say, look, hey, I'm a freelance writer. Freelance writers are not allowed to smoke Cuban cigars. It's not a question of the embargo. It's just a question like, you want me to spend how much for a cigar? I don't think so. <laughs> All right. Well, last question. What is your favorite 
food indulgence? My favorite food indulgence. Um, you know, it's a question of definition of indulgence. Um, probably um, eh, chocolate. Let's just say chocolate. That's simple. Good chocolate, good chocolate. So like good peanut butter. Thank you. I'm not eating yes. Hershey's, okay? I, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, the thing about chocolate, it's kind of like the thing about beer. I mean, difference in good chocolate and lame chocolate, it isn't that big of a price. I'm not eating half a pound a day. So, you know, eh. No, I, you're, you are correct both on the cigars and the beer and the peanut butter and the chocolate. There is there's there's fine there's also not fine at all ever and then there's like holy crap this is amazing and then it turns out the amazing comes with the price <laughs> that's also amazing and not everybody really gives a crap about spectacular chocolate you know yeah yeah i don't need spectacular chocolate and i need good chocolate so that, you know that's good too yeah so is is there a chocolate you would recommend Depends. See, here's the thing. The answer is yes, but I'm going to follow it up because I'm the cook. I'm going to say, "What are you doing with it?" So, are you are you making a dessert? What dessert? Is, <laughs> yeah. Sure. Okay. I'm going to have some. So, what kind of dessert are you making? Are you going to use it in cooking for, say, maybe making a braised venison with prune dish? And if you're thinking, "Oh my God, that sounds terrible," oh my, no, no, <laughs> telling you. A braised venison with chocolate sauce and, and prunes may be the best thing you'll ever have in your life. It's amazing. And it's actually not my recipe. It's a Paul Bocuse recipe. Well, I think you have greatly overestimated, overestimated my culinary ambitions. Well, I was speaking not just to you, you, of course, but also no, to no, the listeners. No, no, that's good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't cooked. I, I've done a little cooking with chocolate, not recently, but... Uh, you know, some good basic German chocolate, milk chocolate's good. So Milka, Ritter, whatever, eh, it'll do. <laughs> it's okay. See, the most important thing in, in any of those things, peanut butter, beer, cigars, or chocolate, it, the, the person who really matters to is the person consuming the product. Right. So if you really, really like it, then anybody else's opinion just shite. doesn't matter because you're the one consuming it. And if you're happy... I have nothing to say about it. Yeah, and it's it's very important not to have too high standards. Yeah, that, I'm 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 going to have to go back and find that. That's a spectacular quote about the cigars. I love that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, how can what's the best way for people to follow you and follow your work? Uh, JimBovard.com. Um, I've uh, that's my website. I've got a blog. Most of my uh, articles and interviews. I uh, cross post there. I've got links to my books, 10 books. I think Amazon has them all. Uh, some foreign language editions of the, that they don't have, but not a big loss. Um, so um, I write for a bunch of different places. So, but the uh, links are at that, uh, are at the website. So, And also you mentioned you're active on Twitter. Oh yeah. Thank you. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, um, uh, I'm glad one of us has an active brain. Uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, Jim Bovard. It's B-O-V- I guess B-O-V-A-R-D, but that'll be on the screen. So Yeah, well, I also put links to, so I'll put a link to your webpage and your Twitter account, and I'll put a link to uh, Amazon should have a page just for your books, and I'll put a link to that too. Great. Um, hey, well, thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll add the link to Jim's site his Twitter handle, and the Amazon page for his books on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 181. After the interview, I noticed an omission in our talk about propaganda. The error is mine, and that error is not mentioning the real information that goes unmentioned. Yemen is a prime example of a humanitarian crisis very underreported. Now, I know some people will be offering their own editions, yelling at the radio right now, and there are many. My point is that the propaganda can also be what you're not told, and then how do you know to go look for it? 
The last two years are a prime example of propaganda by omission. Pick up your copy of my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, on Amazon, or check out the reader-submitted photos from dishes they've made on culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort and use the purchase link there. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. If you like the show, I invite you to support it. There are several ways you can do that on culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher and leave a rating and a review. Next week, I'm doing the second episode on the Escoffier La Guide Culinaire Cooking. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. So I'm, I mentioned to, uh, it's funny, the world, we have lots of digital friends and, and then that's fine. I think there's some really good people. I wish I could meet them, but that's another story. So I was um, sharing with Daniel McAdams that I was going to talk to you and uh, Daniel's a big fan of yours and, and, and I will embarrass him by saying he calls you a national treasure. That's very kind of Daniel. That's very unsung, he says. So I may, I may have put words in his mouth a little bit, but um, having read your work, I think he's probably right. So well, we'll you. leave it at that, and you're welcome. So thank you for your time today. I do appreciate that. Hey, uh, thanks so much for your having me on, and thanks for the guidance on chocolate. <laughs> well, you're welcome. If you ever decide you want to cook, let me know. <laughs> I will. I, they're easy recipes. So that's. So I, I think so. Flashing back to my past, uh, there was a time where that I actually tried to uh, create recipes, and uh, back in my twenties, I actually entered the Pillsbury Bake Off. Good for you. I didn't win. That's okay, but you entered. You, the, my my daughter recently did. Um, uh, um, she's in a choir for high school and she had to do, um, it wasn't a like trio did a little song and she was, she felt very frustrated afterward that the other two girls didn't really carry their own weight in, in, in singing. Uh-huh. And so I can appreciate the frustration of, of, of having to carry them. Sure. But I think there's a lot to be said for, getting up on stage and doing it, even if you do it badly, because there's a whole lot of people who will be in the cheap seats saying, well, well, you know, they'll complain and poke fingers, but they're not on stage. So getting up and doing it, arranging a contest, I think that's a really big step. Well, it, it was, uh, it was fun. It was a learning experience. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've never been handicapped by modesty. So, uh, and it certainly didn't, and it didn't surprise me that it didn't win. Uh, but it was fun to, you know, it, it's, you know, it's fun to throw a Hail Mary pass, you know, yeah. and that's shit. That's what I've done a lot of my writing career and I managed <laughs> to survive. So, you know, what the hell I'm still here. So. Excellent. Very good. Well, I appreciate the, your time today. This was a good conversation. I'm, I'm glad we, I'm glad we did it.